Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear your word with joy. Amen. The scripture reading for today comes from the first chapter of Mark, verses 16 through 20. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The word of the Lord. This church has loomed large for me for many reasons for a long time, but I'm absolutely delighted to have been invited to be here this morning. This congregation, you may or may not know, is one of the very, very important churches within the Presbyterian Church USA family. Uh, Your faithfulness, your long, superb tradition of wonderful worship, and by the way, it's such a delight to be here and participate in this this dignified and authentic and spirit-filled worship service. But your tradition of Compelling preaching and faithful worship is just very important across the whole denomination. I've been uh, privileged to be friends with pastors of this church over the years and privileged to be a friend of your current pastor, Fairfax Fair, who's a respected leader in our denomination. And It's just wonderful to see how her ministry is uh, taking hold here and bearing fruit. Uh, long before uh, I was... Uh, a long-distance student of Ernest Campbell. He never knew who I was, but I watched him very, very carefully. And late in his life, we became friends, and he invited me to write an endorsement for a collection of prayers. And I've always been so grateful for Ernie Campbell. Before I moved to Chicago, uh, I was in Columbus, Ohio, for 11 years at the Broad Street Presbyterian Church. Uh, Columbus, uh, you may know, is a home of a institution of higher education, and uh, you may have heard of it. Our our children grew up in Columbus and became, over the years, uh, supporters and uh, then rabid fans of that institution's football team. Uh, The oldest of those youngsters, who's now middle-aged still, on game day gets out an old 33 RPM record of that institution's marching band playing fight songs, and He called me and he said, Dad, I know you're going to Ann Arbor. Uh, Don't try to make a joke about Ohio State football. They won't think it's funny. (laughs) Well, I think I just did, and you laughed, so we're (laughs) off to a good start here. Uh, Let us pray. Startle us, O God, with your truth, and open our hearts and our minds this day to the word you have for us that hearing we might believe and believing trust you with our futures, with our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The second New Testament lesson this morning is from the Gospel according to St. Mark, and I'll begin reading 
at chapter 8, verse 27. Listen for God's Word. Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way He asked His disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered Him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered Him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this generation... Of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The late Yogi Berra, the Hall of Fame longtime catcher for the New York Yankees, was famous not only for his skill on the baseball diamond, which was considerable, but for those priceless platitudes and aphorisms he uttered on regular occasion. Among the best and most priceless, I always thought, was this one. Yogi said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. (laughs) Not unlike that most beloved American poem by Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. Two Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. And then the last stanza. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Sometimes you simply have to make a decision, this way or that way to go to college or join the Marines, to find a job or not to find a job just now. The decision of which college to attend is incredibly important and used to be relatively simple, by the way. Some of us applied to one college and decided to attend without ever having laid our eyes on it. The whole process, as you know, has become progressively more complicated for my children and now my grandchildren, multiple applications, multiple fees, trips to visit, interviews occurring over a period of several years. It's a huge decision and will determine much of what follows. But it's not as important as the decision as the person with whom I choose to spend the rest of my life, the one to whom I am willing to say, all I am and all I ever will be, all I have and ever will have, I commit to you. Every time over the years I stood in front of a couple and led them through their vows, The enormity of what they were saying always took my breath away. It still does. In every life, there comes a time when decisions must be made, and 
And when they are made, the tectonic plates of our lives shift and move, and nothing is ever the same again. And in every life comes a time to make a decision, deeply personal, spiritual actually, about what we will live for, what we will follow, what we will give ourselves to, what, if necessary, we would be willing to die for. David Foster Wallace was a very distinguished author and thinker, and he took his own life after a long struggle with mental illness, but before he died, he delivered a remarkable commencement address at Kenyon College. There is no such thing as atheism, he said, no such thing as not worshiping. The only choice we get is what to worship. He warned the graduates to be careful and thoughtful about what they choose. He, he said, if you worship money and things, there will never be enough. If you choose to worship beauty and sexual allure, when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths. Worship power, and you will always feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power to keep your fears at bay. Worship your intellect, and you will end up feeling stupid, always on the edge of being found out. He warned the Kenyan graduates that you can slip into this kind of worship little by little, day by day, or you can choose to worship something, to give your life to sacrifice for something good and authentic and important. It's up to you. You get to decide. David Brooks' fascinating recent book, The Road to Character, is a study of how important and significant in individuals in history, from St. Augustine to Francis Perkins to A. Philip Randolph and Dwight Eisenhower, developed character values that allowed them to live fully and meaningfully and lead brilliantly. I was particularly taken by uh, Brooks' chapter on uh, General George Catlett Marshall, Chief of Staff of the United States Army during the Second World War and Secretary of State for whom the Marshall Plan that rebuilt Europe was named. Marshall was a quite modest man. He said that his deepest formative value was to make a commitment, a covenant, he said, to some institution that is embedded in the ground before I was born and will be here after I die. The priesthood, the ministry, science, farming, law, education, for him, the United States Army, an institution that was here before he was born and would continue after he died. Decision time came for two young men a long time ago, standing knee-deep in the waters of the Sea of Galilee, casting a fishing net. Another young man walking along the shore stopped to watch. When they noticed him and looked up and their eyes met, he said the most peculiar, abrupt thing. He said, follow me. And for whatever reason, that is what they did. They dropped their nets and followed. There are three of them now, Jesus, Simon Peter, and his brother Andrew. They come upon two more men fishing, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, mending their nets, follow me, and they stepped out of their boat and followed. There's no explanation. Some have suggested they must have known Jesus, must have been thinking about his teaching, pondering their own lives, where they were headed or not headed. All Mark tells us is that when Jesus showed up, they had to make a decision and did. He didn't tell them where they were going. No career path with measurable goals and metrics and expected outcomes. Just follow me, 
and they dropped their nets and followed. The way Mark tells it, a similar moment happens in the middle of the story, another decision time. Now there are 12 of them, at, at least 12. By the way, there's reason to believe that there were several women following Jesus as well, but in that time and place, women were not counted. They had been following him through the rolling hills and villages of Galilee, watching and listening as he taught in the synagogues. They watched in amazement as large crowds gathered wherever he went, bringing to him their sick, their elderly, their babies for his blessing, his touch. They watched as he healed and as he said things they had never heard before. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. Forgive those who offend you. Love one another. They listened as everywhere he said, the kingdom of God is here in your midst right now. Small, sometimes invisible, but it's here in, like leaven in the bread in acts of kindness and compassion and justice and love. And at some point, they must have said to themselves, who, who is he? Where is he leading us? In the middle of the story, he answers both of those questions, and I think gives them an opportunity to drop out and go back home to their fishing. Who do people say that I am, he asks, and out of the blue, and they respond. Some think you're John the Baptist. Others think you, others think you are Elijah or one of the ancient prophets. But you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon, Jesus has been calling him Peter the Rock, blurts out the most astonishing thing. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What you have said is true, Peter, and in order for me to be the Messiah, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. God forbid, Lord, Peter says, and Peter's right, the Messiah doesn't suffer and die. Everyone knows that God's Messiah will rally the people and organize an insurrection and rally the hundreds, maybe thousands of radical zealots hiding in the hills and drive out the hated Romans and put the Messiah where he belongs, on the throne of David. Get behind me, Peter. Stop talking and listen. And sweeping his eyes over them, looking at each one, he says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Take up a cross and follow. For if you want to save your life, you will lose it. And if you lose your life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you will find it. It's for you to decide. Dietrich Bonhoeffer thought about this matter in the 1930s as the Nazi party began to assume control in Germany and began to persecute Jews and prepare for war. Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a, and a fine young theologian. He was a scholar and, and a pacifist. And he wrote one of the most influential books in the, in the 20th century, The Cost of Discipleship, in which he defined Christian faith not as giving intellectual assent to a list of doctrines, that's the way many of us have all our lives defined Christianity as a, a set of ideas about God and Jesus, which to understand is to be a Christian. That's not it at all, Bonhoeffer said. In fact, that's much too easy. That's cheap grace. Bonhoeffer concluded and wrote that Christian faith is the act of radical personal obedience to Jesus Christ, and it happens in the world, not just in the safe comfort of the church. 
faith for Bonhoeffer meant living in living life in the world as Christ's man or woman, holding nothing back. And it was this definition of faith and his own personal commitment to do that, to, to obey Jesus Christ in the world, that led him, of all things, to join the resistance and participate in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. That plot almost succeeded, but failed. In the cost of discipleship, Bonhoeffer had written, when Christ calls a man, he calls him, come to die. Along with his fellow conspirators, he was arrested and executed in April 1945, just before the war ended. Jesus had said, if you wish to save your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. That call happens for most of us far less dramatically than it did for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, thanks be to God. I've always loved the way Presbyterian New Testament scholar Lamar Williamson put it because I have seen it so many times in my own ministry, in my own experience. Williamson said, the woman who devotes her life to raising children who need a home, a man whose devotion to his mentally ill wife is quiet and steady, the youth whose civil disobedience for conscience' sake leads to prison or exile. There are countless thousands who through the centuries and in many varying contexts have interpreted this text with their lives. I served for a while on the board of directors of the Presbyterian Publishing Corporation and chaired the board for a term. It was fascinating. Uh, we met several times a year. And one of our responsibilities, which I found very interesting, was to hear the acquisitions report books that were in the early planning and early writing stage and would be finished and on the market in a year or so. One of our big products projects back then was a theological commentary on the Bible, a wonderful contribution to biblical scholarship and a valuable resource for preachers such as Fairfax and myself who were always looking for a, a new angle on a familiar text. The, the editor in charge of the whole project told us that a distinguished Old Testament scholar, John Golden Gay, professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, had been commissioned and signed a contract to write 17 volumes on the Old Testament. 17 volumes. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a biblical commentary, but they're usually big, hefty books that could easily serve as a doorstop. And Professor Golden Gay had agreed to write 17. So attempting a little irreverent humor, humor, I said, well, that's a lot of books. I hope he's a young man. <laughs> Board members chuckled. And then the editor in charge said, actually, he's not young at all. He's around 70. His wife suffers from advanced multiple sclerosis. Professor Golden Gay takes care of her himself all day, every day. He doesn't travel any longer, doesn't accept speaking engagements, doesn't even attend scholarly conferences, which scholars love to do. He stays with her every day, all day, cares for his wife, and writes books about the Bible. One day Jesus redefined forever what it means to live a faithful life, to be a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ, to be his woman, his man, his young person, Follow me, he said. Take up your cross and follow. If you want to save your life, you will end up losing your life. But if you lose your life, if you find a way to give your life to something good and just and important and loving, you will find your life. 
It's the miracle of this religion of ours. In giving your life away, you become fully and completely and vitally alive. There is quite simply nothing more important than that for any of us, regardless of who we are or where we are in our own life's journey. And finding something to give our life to, our time, our energy, our imagination, our love, and our resources, it really is in the final analysis a matter of life and death. I'm one of those poor souls, mostly my age, who never learned to type properly. I've been fortunate most of my life to have someone else do it for me. It's really rather pathetic, I now know. Since retirement, I'm on my own. I have to do my own typing. I'm slow and not very accurate. I make a lot of mistakes and spend more time than I want to even think about going back and correcting. And one mistake I make all the time, almost every time, however, causes me to pause and smile. As you know, the I and the O are beside each other on the keyboard. And so when I mean to write live, it almost always comes out love. And when I mean to write love, it almost always comes out live. It's almost as if there's a mysterious dynamic going on here, a transcendent eternal truth emerging out of my typing ineptness. Live, love. Love, live. It's a decision we make, not just once, but every day of our lives. Who will I live for? For whom or what will I give my life? Jesus said those who want to save their lives will lose them. Those who lose their lives for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save them. Thanks be to God. Amen. Setting our wisdom, our will, our words aside, emptying our hearts and bringing nothing in our hands. We yearn for the healing, the holding, the accepting, and the forgiving that Christ alone can offer. We pray that with our offerings of love, service, and food this day, in this church and all over your world, hope and nourishment will come to those in need and relieve the suffering. Merciful God, send now in kindness your Holy Spirit to make our sharing in this bread and cup a sharing in Christ's body and blood. And let that same spirit rest on us, converting us from the patterns of this passing world until we conform to the shape of him whose food we now share. We pray it in the name of Jesus, who gave his own words for us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.